Hey, what's going on? It's Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast. We are coming to you the week of Thanksgiving. I hope everyone out there enjoys the time, either uh, just alone to, to recharge and uh, enjoy time with others, with family. I know this, Thanksgiving is about giving thanks. And I am so grateful for so many great people in my life, not to mention my family and colleagues and friends, but um, people that have come through my life that remind me of the goodness and people that I can rely on. And that's how you get through things in your life. One of those people, one friend that I have made, uh, going back to his days at Fordham, I was already into my broadcasting career. Um, and I met him when he was a student is Tony Reale, longtime host of Around the Horn. Before that, Stat Boy on uh, PTI. He has built a incredible career at ESPN with a longevity of a show like Around the Horn. But the reason for that longevity, maybe why it's surprising, are all things that Tony's going to touch on in this conversation. We are going to run the gambit from what stokes the fires of your passion and your enthusiasm, how we got started in the business, how we came to be at PTI, how that launched his career into Around the Horn. And Tony has transformed Around the Horn into a show that is not afraid to tap, tackle important topics. And we will get into some of that. Tony is very open and honest over the years about his battles with mental health issues. And he feels that talking about it will help others. And it really will. So you'll want to hear Tony talk about that. Talk about athletes and what they are going through in that space as well. Related to some of the things that I've gone through in my life. Hope you enjoy a conversation here with fellow Fordham alum from ESPN's Around the Horn. It's Tony Reale on The Voice of the Nets. Chris Carino here with the great Tony Reale. Uh, and if you're if you're listening, you won't get this, but Theater of the Mind, which we learned to do at our alma mater, mm-hmm. Fordham University, is I'm wearing a white <laughs> yes, T-shirt yes, that says <laughs> WFUV Sports. You and I are both alumnus of WFUV yeah. Sports. Uh, you know, Tony, I, I met you for the first time when you were a student. I'm about seven years. I think you're 99, Fordham? I am 2000 at Fordham. 2000 yeah. Fordham. Well, I'm even mm-hmm. older. Uh, I'm 92. And I used to have some of the guys come up when I was just working in the studio, WOR, producing the games from the studio. I used to have you guys come up. Do you remember coming up? I remember. I mean, do, do I remember? I'm, I'm impressed you remember. <laughs> I don't think I made that much of an impression. But I, it was, I mean, Chris, you are an idol of mine. <laughs> I grew up a Nets fan. I grew up a radio fan. I, you were you were my voice. Forget about well, Tay and Breen. I mean, what are we talking about? <laughs> Your papa. No, uh, I looked forward to that that trip, that field trip we took to WR. I remember the, the exact moment. I remember seeing you. I remember waving to people behind the glass like I worked there. And you said, Tony, you know some people? <laughs> no, I don't know people. But I was just very happy to be in that moment. It was another, um, it was my dream, you know, still is my dream. My dream is to be you, Chris. Um, no, it, no. it was, like, and I it continues right to there. I, you, you, I think you were with Connell McShane, I was. who is now at, uh, at Fox News, uh, Fox mm-hmm. Business. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
who else was there? Rick Schultz, uh, maybe? Rick Schultz would have been in that room. Uh, was Charles Costello that year or or maybe? Could be. Um, I, that, that was the group we were with. It would have been a, a great group of, of people who are living and breathing the business still. Yeah, and how and then, could you not be after you get that that <laughs> access, right? You opened up a door, and once you see it, you're never going back. If you're an 18 year old uh, kid just, like I was at that moment, and, but I do, uh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna not only do I remember you being there, but you're gonna and you you may not believe me here, but yeah. I remember after the game sitting with you guys and or standing around afterwards and. You, it may have been at halftime. You broke down the game. You, you, you did it in such a way <laughs> that I remember it stood out to me. I remember saying to myself, "This kid's sharp. I, mm. I, this kid's gonna. You've got a career in front of you." Wow. And, and you. I, so, not only do I remember you being there, I remember that moment. I remember the way you are. And you know, uh, eventually after that, I remember I got out of the studio and and we hired Andrew Bogish, who's another Fordham mm -hmm. guy, a little. Uh, but she's between you and I in that, in terms of uh, when we were there. But I've always felt it's really important. I still go back and do workshops, mm -hmm. um, even though you know my son's a freshman there now working at the radio station. But I, I was just talking to a student the other day. Mm. And, you know, I talk to young people all the time, as you probably do as well, who want to get into this business and you'll, you'll give them your time. But mm -hmm. with the Fordham kids, I feel like there's this, ownership that we have to take, not of their career, but I, I'm, we're, we're invested. And I think it, yeah. it's, the, it's the fraternity of Fordham and WFUV that has meant so much to me. You mentioned Mike Breen. When I started, when I got a, an award from the Garden, Madison Square Garden, when I was a senior, I got to do a, a Nick game on the radio with Walt Frazier, a quarter. And Mike was the first guy wow. to meet me at the Garden yeah, it was MSG was trying to find like the best play-by-play -play guy in the area or something. And I got to do a quarter of a Knicks game. And Mike was the first guy. He was doing pre and post for the Knicks on radio. Mm -hmm. And he met me at the garden. He took me around. He showed me, here's how you get to the press room. Here's where you get your notes. He's introducing yeah. me to people. And, and I started interning under Bob Papa that year. It's so important to give back to the guys that are coming up from behind. I feel that way too. And I mean, I, I know... How could you ever go back or ever try to work any other career angle or job when you have that experience? Uh, to, to, to further your point, yes, of course, I have also hosted 90.7 WFUV students and even young professionals at Around the Horn. Did it multiple times before the pandemic, and we're going to start opening up again at, uh, to, to the classes. But even before that, I have the same story with a Ryan Rucco yes. where I was talking to his mom and dad during his tour of Fordham and he went to the radio station and I just happened to be back there that week and I'd, I'd already graduated, but I was just hanging out. And then I met Mr. and Mrs. Rucco and, and here I am. And, and there was a passion and a buzz to Ryan. And it's an amazing thing that, that we have, and this is a, an amazing business. So we know the dream that we all live and we know where it started. For me, it started when I was five years old and it started when I was 10 years old at Great Adventure in Jersey <laughs> where they had a sports festival and, and you could kick a field goal or you could try to return a serve from whatever, 120 mile per hour machine. And then they had two headsets and a table and you can call up a play and me and my brother, Michael, Put on the headsets, and this was my dream. And I and the play it was was Shaquille O'Neal dunking on the nets and breaking 
the stanchion, right? <laughs> yes. this, this is a famous moment. They had a, they had a couple famous moments. They had the immaculate reception, and I called that one. And then they had the Shaq play, and I I was living for this moment. And you would get a, a tape of it afterwards. And when we got the really? tape, uh, the the audio wasn't working on my microphone, and all we had was my brother blowing me <laughs> out. My brother Michael made a great call. He takes it down. Shaq went up with the ball and came down with the rim. Great call from my brother Michael. And our voices were so high at that moment. You know, eleven years old, Six Flags Great Adventure. One of one of my one of my greatest memories of my life. And uh, yeah, it's a bug. It's it, it's about passion. And you are a passionate guy. And I know uh, how I feel. And and sometimes it's hard for me to even contain. And I imagine that moment at WOR was exactly that. And Kornizer and Wilbon had the same story. Very hard to contain. And people that are around the horn had the same story. You know, people sometimes in our industry need to get up to be on TV or radio. I need to get down. You know, <laughs> I need to I need to take it down a notch because like when you call a game, you always have to give yourself a place to go. You can't be here the whole time yeah. because now you're here and they're going back the other way. And you just, you know, get down no. a little bit, reality. <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to give yourself a, a ceiling um, mm-hmm. to get to. And, and I had we. I interviewed uh, Kevin Harlan for this podcast a few oh. weeks back, and that was a big discussion of ours. It was about, yeah, yeah it was about uh, well, he's, he's both low and high, right? He has yeah. an incredible register that is both. There's a something back here, and there's something up here, and that's a. I mean, these are the things. These voices, not I don't want to say of our youth, but I mean, you have a voice that is in my in my head. It's just in my head, the way you call a game and, and the, the clarity and the succinct Thank nature. You. I don't have that. I didn't have that when I was, was at Fordham. And I don't even have that as a broadcaster. So as we talk about finding your voice, literally, and finding your way through an industry, there's different ways to approach it. But please, I want to hear what, what Harlan well, told you. No, I just, I, I think that sometimes he, and I brought it up in a way of being very complimentary. And, I, and Kevin is one of my favorite people in the industry. I mean, just a, 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 as nice a person as you will ever meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I brought up the fact that what stands out when you think of Kevin Harlan, aside from the voice, is his enthusiasm. And mm-hmm. we Absolutely. need you, you, you. It goes back to that passion you talk about for sports. And I think Kevin, he, he, he's a little defensive of his enthusiasm at times because I think he's been critiqued a little bit. And mm-hmm. he says, I don't care. Like if I see a play in the first quarter, that is that gets me excited. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get excited, and I think that's awesome. I think you should be. I mean, yeah. if we can't get yeah. excited about the stuff that we see or that we're talking about, then we're in the wrong business. And I think that enthusiasm and that passion comes mm-hmm. out as long as it's genuine. Yeah. You know, as long yeah. as it's not, yeah. it doesn't feel like you're making it up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the uh, the baselines for uh, my place in this this industry, let's say, not to be grandiose about it, but the kind of television I like to make and I like to watch. And then can you apply it to a game call like you just did with Kevin or yourself? Maybe. But there is a relatability to it. There has to be relatability and unpredictability. For me to watch TV, I want to, I want to feel something's relatable. I want to see myself in a show, see my, see my friends in a show. If I was talking about around the horn, the, the barroom discussion, 
You know, yeah. Woody is the crazy uncle. You know, this is my <laughs> Sunday dinner at home where my my father, my uncle and my grandparents would be screaming while they were playing Pinochle. It's those types of things that are the the, the secret sauce, the relatability. Kornheiser, Wilbon, best friends, brothers, right? Yeah. You can sense that. It's the same conversation you'd be having with your brother or sister, right? But then the unpredictability for me, that happens in a game call at all times. And that's what Kevin's talking about. If a play is, brings unpredictability, I'm going to respond like a fan, like a fan would. And that's, yeah. that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I think the industry has got to that place where we appreciate that. Was it always the case? I mean, I'll say this. And again, I, I was by no means a polished play-by-play announcer uh, at FUV. I was alongside shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with Spiro Didis, who was and is out of the womb, a very, <laughs> very polished play-by-play -play guy. And yeah. we both had our game tapes broken down. I wouldn't even use the word critiqued, but I would say broken down by a Hall of Fame broadcaster, Marty Glickman. Yes. And, you know, when, when you're breaking it down, one next to the other, it was clear we were calling different games, different sports, while calling the same game and the same sport, you know? And, and things are appreciated in one game call and things are appreciated in one television show, right? And I was certainly on one side of the spectrum where my passion and personality, I guess, was better fit for a, a show mechanic, a, a, whether it be a, a debate show or a highlight show. Was that Marty's critique? Because you and I both, we, I had Marty Glickman oh, there as well. Anthony, um, Anthony, you're never <laughs> going to call a game like this. And beautiful voice again. And a, and a voice I grew up with. I was not, of course, old enough to remember the, the Knicks, but I did remember Johnny Hector. You know, uh, it was, yeah, was a he running was doing the Jets for, for the, the time Jets. when we were So doing I was it, yeah. with the Jets when I was, well, yeah, was right when you were at, at Fordham and then I was a younger man at that point. So I remember that. And I, I everything, I knew his story. I, I mean, I knew Marty Glickman before I was in the room with him. And that only happens when you're crazy about being an announcer growing up. I knew the 1936 Olympics. I knew uh, he, uh, let me provide the backstory now. This was one of the great sprinters in America in the 1930s alongside Polo Jesse Owens and had a wonderful career at Syracuse as a football yeah. player and a track star and made the U.S. Olympic team but could not race in the 36 Berlin games because he was a Jewish American. And I, mean, I knew this story as a young man. By the way, just to, in the room. just to interject there for a second, also on that team, Lou Zamperini from Laura the, Hildebrandt's book, Unbroken. The great, great story of Unbroken, yes. one of the greatest anyway, books we, ever, and, and a, and a we, movie as well. <laughs> we, 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 we were going off on tangents, which I knew we, we would are. do. Um, <laughs> Think about Marty, though, and and... So, yeah, he used to try and go. So if, a little background. So Marty Glickman would come to Fordham. He would work with young announcers Amazing. and he would listen Amazing. to our tapes. And I remember just going up to WFUV my first week I was at Fordham and I wanted to get involved. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I saw there was a sports workshop and I went, wow, I love sports. I've always thought about this. I didn't really know that was an option. Let me this go sit on the workshop. Me. Wow. It was that, yeah. it was that organic for you. And I mean, I used to, I used to be a kid who, who, who did games into a tape recorder when I was little, yeah, like a yeah, lot of us, yeah, yeah, but now yeah. I go up, I sign up for WFUV and I go to sit in on a workshop with Marty. And I realized two things. I knew number one, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And number two, I don't know how to do it. I have to listen to this man. And then he taught me how to paint the word picture 
and consider the listener is the mantra that's always still in my head. And now this was what I went through. And then you went through that same experience. We would sit in the room and Marty would put on our tape and we would try to see how far we could go without <laughs> Marty stopping the tape. Oh, it really was like watching seconds, Chris. It's like watching film. It's like if you're a yeah. quarterback and you're watching film with your coach. I mean, that's, that's literally the way it was. Yeah. I mean, finding your voice is something that I go back to in my head before I do every around the horn. And, and it's a literal and it's, it's a figurative thing for me. And we can talk about finding your voice as a broadcaster as I aged into the full uh, person I am. And now how I've begun from going to be a, a host who's a sportscaster to trying to be the most human host I could be in a mm -hmm. moment on a sports debate show that has a scoring system. That's finding a voice in a different space. But right here with Marty, you know, I, I got the tape recorder stopped uh, early <laughs> and often, and I'm fine with that. But I also had a voice while I, I wasn't putting on airs. I sounded like a young, young boy. I did. I was, I had to take time, Chris, off WFUV's uh, sports cast and their news cast to work on my delivery. And that's that's a fine thing to admit sure. and a fine thing to know. It's criticism. I was taken off the air in the Bronx because I didn't sound good enough. You know, that's yeah. an amazing, because my accent wasn't right. Because I was sounding like I was from, you know, wherever I was from. Uh, mom from Brooklyn, dad from Staten Island, from New Jersey. I, I didn't sound the part. And that's right. I also got a voice coach um, handed to me, given to me while I was at ESPN which is a fine thing to admit. I have no problem saying I was a work in progress for quite some time. His name was Dave Cohen, um, who, who, I, who called games for quite some time too. And, Yankees, and, right? Yes, he, he was on the Yankees for one year. And before that, he was he with CBS, the, I believe. I want to say he called mm -hmm. the good no-hitter. Would have been 96, yeah. So I, I, I met him in 2001. That makes sense. Yeah. He was with ESPN and the Yankees at that point. And he was doing, you know, work with broadcasters for all of ESPN. It wasn't like, yeah. wow, reality's the worst. But certainly did work with me, flew in to do work with me. These were things like uh, tongue twisters, Chris. You know, and I was already a stat boy on PTI and I'd taken over around the yeah. horn and they put an investment in me. And I viewed it as that. I didn't view it anything other than, you know, Fordham and Bob Ahrens was bringing Marty Glickman as an investment in us. And, and again, take the criticism. And I had to say, Irish wristwatch five times fast before every, before every around the horn. Irish wristwatch. Yeah. Please, Chris, you're a pro. You know, I mean, these are the type of things to open up my voice a little bit better. I talk about this with young uh, guys all the time. You can change. You, if there's something that's holding you back, if there's something that, you know, you can work on, even things like your voice, you can work on. I think there is an innate quality in everyone that's going to make them uh, the broadcaster that they are. And there's certain things that if you just, if you don't have it, they're, mm -hmm. they're hard to develop. I think the voice was in you. You just needed somebody to bring it out of you in a, in the way that, that Dave Cohen did or whoever it was you, you credited did it. And I also think that there's the passion too. You, that's something that's innate. I mean, that's hard to fake. It's hard to learn, but when you're going through trying to change your voice or your delivery a little bit, I know I, in high school, I was competitive in speech and debate. And I was a kid that grew up in Yonkers. Mm -hmm. And I remember my teacher, my coach, John Murphy, one day saying to me in the, in, in the practice classroom, he goes, Chris, the word is taught, not taught. <laughs> and so you yeah. got to get, you got to yeah. drill yeah. that stuff out of you. So when it comes to the quality of your voice, mm -hmm. are there certain, were there things that 
that you were able to change that now you do without thinking? I mean, I made the Irish wristwatch joke. I still do that. And even in scripts, whenever I have a moment and it's a light story, it's always the rascally Russell Westbrook, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but was I it a I tone to... or delivery? What, what was for the, me, it's slowing down my brain. It's For me, it's slowing down. Everything okay. is slowing down my my thought process. When I slow down my thought process, you know, I I will then enunciate a whole lot better. And I can still keep my energy high at a high level. But it, for me, I don't know if I could even explain it the best way. But it was um, slowing down my my brain. And then at the same time, I was leaning into maybe different different parts of around the horn. Allowing, you know, hosting quite often is listening. And if you want to talk and talk and talk as a host, um, you're going to, the show is going to go in a different direction than I learned. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be about the sports writers. I wanted it to be about the gaming mechanic of the show. So those were some of the, 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 the changes I made while working with a voice coach at that point. Uh, but yeah. I think I'd slowed down my brain. There was a, uh, Tim Capture and I talk about it with young kids all the time. Mm. The 2020 rule, 20% mm. slower, 20% yeah. louder. I think mm. people, that's something that people don't, I mean, Marty used to tell us this too. Speak like the microphone is six feet away from you. Not that you're yelling, but you're using mm -hmm. all of your voice. And when you use all of your voice, mm -hmm. you're using the best of your voice. It's like being on a stage. You have to speak to the last person in the room. You know, that was, so those, those are little uh, insider things. You know, you, you talk about around the horn, Tony. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's so many things that I wanted to, to click on while you were talking, but I like to let you finish the talk. First of all, I would think that <laughs> in the reality household, it might have been Scoopo or Briska that you were playing and not Pinochle. <laughs> no, nah, for whatever reason, that's what the grandparents played. I, 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 I recognize that. They played it growing up and they were living and, and working right outside my studio right now. I, I just Every time I bring up my grandparents, I think about where I am and where they were. They unloaded bananas off boats at Pier. 15 on the Lower wow. East Side in the South Street Seaport. And now I'm filming ESP. The, the studios is Pier 17 in, in South Street wow. Seaport. Yeah. And, and now you're there. You're hosting around the horn. Let, let's go back to where you started now. You, what was your first job out of college? I worked the night after my graduation at Channel 11 WPIX. A, uh, wow. a mainstay for me growing up as well with Sal Marciano and more Another specifically Sean Kimmerling. Right. Mm. So, so uh, I, I was uh, brought into, I think, assist with video. And, and then I quickly was able to write sports casts for, for Sal, who liked the way I wrote and how I wrote in his voice. And that was an important lesson early on. Writing for TV is not like writing for, I mean, for your history majors at Fordham, which is what I was too. But I, I, I learned that really quick and I felt that, you know, I knew how to talk in the way a sportscast was supposed to. So I did um, Sal Marciano and uh, the late Sean Kimmerling's uh, newscasts for Channel 11 in 2000. And I also took in a job or, or submitted a, for a job with a spinoff to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You remember that show? Yeah. Uh, it, it was it was the biggest show on planet Earth in 2000 with Regis hosting that. But the idea was to make it a sports trivia game show. I mean, what's more perfect than a sports trivia game show in my mind? So I was hired as a researcher and then became a writer for season two and season three of a show called Two Minute Drill, 
which was hosted by Kenny Maine, and that was my sneaking in the uh, the back door with yes, ESPN. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. when you started working with uh, Kornheiser on uh, PTI, Kornheiser and, and Wilbon had the. Um, there was, you know, this was a time when you were working in an office, and there was like a. You know, when people are looking for for babysitters or something, you have those pieces of paper with the little pull-offs. You know, I mean, it felt like it was something like that, that I saw that there was going to be a new show when I was working for for the two-minute drill. But but I'd heard there was a researcher opening for a new show with Kornheiser and Will Bond, not called PTI at the moment, but this was about a month and a half before it launched. September 11th had just happened in New York. And um, in addition to that, um, two minute drill was canceled, and I I felt like I really it was time for me maybe to get out of New York for a little bit. Um, I, I was affected by September 11th in a way that all New Yorkers were. I didn't lose anybody yeah. incredibly close to me in the buildings, but the smells and the city. Um, I mean, I, I I have done work on myself in therapy, getting through that. I didn't realize the impact it had on me. So. I made a decision maybe to move out of New York and then saw that there was an opening in DC for Wilbon and Kornheiser. I interviewed for a job to be the show's researcher. So again, getting into a show production, not on air, but as any way to work on a show and meeting Kornheiser and Wilbon and realizing pretty quickly, wow, this is something here. Did you still have ambition of being on the air? I did. I, I think I... I, I didn't know exactly how to go about doing it. I, I made the decision not to go to, for example, Des Moines, Iowa and do minor league baseball. Um, yeah. I, I made the decision to say, you know what, if I can get on a show, maybe there's a way as a producer to kind of work in that way. And that's exactly how it happened. Although, I mean, there was no playbook for that, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring up the, the things on a bulletin board. How yeah. I got my first internship with the Giants radio broadcast was the the bulletin board at WFUV mm-hmm. and they had stuck something up there about the Giants looking for a uh, an intern great. and uh, contact Bob Papa. And I remember calling Bob and Bob had, had done some stuff with us when I was doing like one-on-one. He did some like fundraisers or something. And he he's like, oh yeah, I, I remember you. I remember you. You're good. Uh, yeah, you got the job. Come on in. And that was it. Like wow. I just on the phone, he just gave me the job. And and my, my assignment was to make sure Paul Dettino didn't go off the rails. Paul was working with him at the time. So for a while, which was hard to do, you know that if you know yeah, Paul. Yeah, um, yeah. So at the time it was Bob and it was me and it was Paul for a while there with the Giants. Yeah. And um, and you were a body man. You were a get back coach. You were yeah, uh, yeah. all those things, right? Yeah. But anyway, so the, yeah, so, so getting that, yeah, just the, the bulletin board, it brought me back to that. Um, and then you, you but you're, you're now on PTI as a researcher. And I always tell this too about kids. Like when, even when I was interning, when, when you're an intern, if your job is to get coffee, then make sure the coffee is the way the guys want it and it's hot, <laughs> right? Yeah, and then yeah, it doesn't, yeah. don't get coffee like you really want to be a play-by-play guy. Get coffee yeah. like you're, a, you're, you're intended to be a barista, right? Yeah, because then yeah. people will go, oh, this kid always brings my coffee the right way. Yeah. Uh, let me take an interest in him. Now you're, you're working as a, as a, as a researcher for we're, we're two weeks away from launch with okay. two guys who are incredible sports writers, but yes, while Tony they've been Kornheiser, on sports reporters, Michael mm-hmm. Wilbon, who, who, and, and, and PTI, I mean, groundbreaking, I mean, everything you see right. on ESPN right. goes back and, and anything on Fox, all these other stations, it all goes back to PTI. 
It's the greatest debate show in the history of television. That's not sports debate. That's any debate. I mean, there Still are big political debate yeah. shows like Crossfire and things. This is superior for a lot of reasons. Uh, but when it was two weeks before launch and you had guys who were on ESPN's The Sports Reporters and on George Michael's Sports Machine on a weekly basis, you know, for five or ten years, but not regular TV people. Tony had done radio work locally in, in D.C., but they were not polished TV people, and they were looking for the production crew to help them with TV. And this production crew, as Tony said the first day, where are all the adults, you know? <laughs> and then he said, rent, don't buy. We have no shot making it past the first commercial break. These are things that, you know, Tony uh, is, that's who he is, but he's a confident uh, communicator and Wilbon is a confident communicator. And it was apparent to me those two weeks before launch, this was something special because of the relationship between the guys. Well, I came in there again, uh, without knowing the story you just told about being the best barista. I was, I came in hot. I came in with flaming hot sports takes, um, uh, to, uh, to bolster their arguments. Cause that's what a researcher is bringing. Yeah. And I came in there with a certain amount of energy and I came in there well, Tony is a guy from Long Island. I felt like I already knew him, right? He felt like, uh, I mean, I yeah. felt, a real, you know, I felt, I knew that guy. And Wilbon is, is a guy who is easy to get along with, easy to love, a big bear hug, hug of a guy who's a lot, he gives a good bluster, but he's a sweet, sweet man. And we got along very well in those first two weeks as I thought I was going to be helping them prepare their arguments. But they looked at each other at one point and said, this should be the show too. There should be, you should be a sidekick on the show. I had maybe sat in their chairs wow. for take two and take three and take four when we were working out our shots. There's some video of this somewhere on the internet where I was, you know, 22 or 23. I'm not Tony Kornheiser, but I'm playing him on TV. And I would do PTI with another uh, young person on set when, when they were tired of working out the camera shots, Kornheiser, Wilbon. And that stuff existed as well. And, and they felt confident enough to say, you're going to be in front of a red light and, and you're going to be a sidekick on the show. This was a week before we went to air, Chris. And now, well, you know, but that, that goes, was... But yeah. that same, but what I'm saying is you do the job you're hired for and you are hired to bring television to these two radio guys and, and writers exactly. and, and, and give them that point of view. And then what happens is by doing your job as well as you did... They now recognize something in you and go, and now they advance you and they put you on the air. You become stat boy for a while mm -hmm. before they actually would refer to you by your name. And then I know Tony used to have a, a good time a stat with your boy, name. always a stat boy. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, what's a stat boy, always a stat boy. It's like being, uh, you know, a Marine or something. I mean, it's But funny. then Tony used to just use to make up all these middle <laughs> names for you, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, th that's, that's part of what I was hoping and always wanting to bring to a show. I mean, there, there was... And energy, you know, I, w I was a flux capacitor of energy in some ways for that show. Nice whenever, reference. whenever, you know, some of these, some of the guys w weren't excited about every story. I was excited about every story and I would get them up to speed along, of course, with our, our brilliant production crew for that team. But I also took it upon myself to, to, I mean, the word wasn't produced at the moment, but it was to produce a, the game segment of the show in some ways, you know, yeah. uh, I want to see Tony and Mike wear, um, cop hats. Let's come up with good cop, bad cop. You know, that I think that one is one I, I may take credit for. Uh, the, the role plays with certainly other producers, but we all should take credit for it because we all came up with those things. Uh, the food chains and the who you gots and the what's the words and all these game segments 
those were those that was kind of also my little it's avenue into fun. the show where I would want I wanted it's to fun. impart the fun of the sports debate that we had. Now Tony and yeah. Mike gonna go as hard on any topic that that it would require. You know, Mike Wilbon was in Hawaii when Chaminade beat Georgetown in the biggest upset in the history. I'm sorry, Chaminade beat Virginia, Virginia in the biggest yeah, upset. Ralph it, Ralph Sampson, in the biggest upset in the history of college basketball. He was there. He's the one reporter there, you know? And, you know, and, and Tony had his feet in the end zone, as he always says, when Doug Flutie found Gerard Phelan in, in the biggest upset or the biggest play in yeah. college football in the 1980s. The these Hell guys Mary have been there. Yeah, they're, they're, they've been these guys there. have been there. So, so they're going to have that. I needed to bring something else to the show, which was, you know, we're going to get kooky. We're going to allow... Uh, a little energy into the show. And it goes way. back to, it goes back to enthusiasm, but we were mm-hmm. just talking about, mm-hmm. right? What did the show need? Mm-hmm. Passion, enthusiasm mm-hmm. to go along with, you know, their brilliance as, mm-hmm. uh, and, and their experience to go mm-hmm. through it. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I always say you, you didn't start around the horn, but you perfected mm-hmm. it. I mean, Max Kellerman was Thank the you. original host. Um, mm-hmm. You were, you were kind of in the same studio space, right? The, you'd be mm-hmm. in the right exactly. place at the right time. Exactly. You got a chance to fill yeah. in on around the horn, jumping in that opportunity. What was that experience of all of a sudden getting your shot? And what were you thinking? Were you thinking I'm going to be here for 20 years? Or were you thinking, I hope I just get through the rest of the show? <laughs> That's a good question. These are TV stories, Chris, that just to underline, this is life. You roll with life. And my experience is you're better off rolling with it. And I would like to do it with a smile on my face. Uh, That's not everybody's way, but these are my TV stories. I was told a week before PTI launched, I would be stat boy. Wasn't the plan. You roll with it. I was called on Sunday night, February of 2004. The Patriots are playing the Panthers in the Super Bowl. It's hmm. an enormous news day. I was called at about halftime. Halftime of that game was when Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson had yes. a scandal that was, uh, you know, one of the biggest things in the history of the FCC. These are huge sports stories. I was the only person within, you know, 100 miles, 500 miles, whatever, because CSPN had a lot of people in Miami for the Super Bowl or in Bristol. But the opening for Around the Horn, because of a contract negotiation, was there that one day. And you happen to be in the studio. Can you fill in this show the day oh. after... The Super Bowl, Super Bowl Monday. You're you're the Stat Boy sidekick. You talk for 30 seconds on one show. Can you please host the show for 30 minutes? The show before. That's how I got the around the horn job. That one day. Oh. Um, I, I didn't have a contract for a year. I was I was just plugging away. Not that I cared because I was thrilled to have, you know, this opportunity. This was the uh this was this was the standby getting the call up. This was the Wally Pip scenario that you dream about in your head. Not that you know, that I was Lou Gehrig in any way those first couple of years, but I've done the show for 4,500 episodes since <laughs> and 20 years. Wow. And it's played out that way. Did I think I would host it for 20 years? I didn't think I was that person that can do the same job. I thought my, 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 um, you know, need for constant stimulation and my excitement would have had me looking for additional things to put on. And my career arc does have that. I did do Good Morning America while hosting Around the Horn for a few years. That turned out to be something that was not for me. It was, I'll say, a failure for me as a sportscaster, or actually at that point, a television presenter. I didn't nail that. And 
These were things I learned about myself along the way. Now I've learned I am the person who can do a show for 20 years. And there's reasons why I'm still hosting Around the Horn for 20 years, because it has opened up other parts of me as a person, as a host. And I feel the privilege it is to open up parts of a sports show that maybe people didn't think a sports debate show with a mute button and a scoring system that nobody could explain can do. <laughs> and I'm proud of that every day. And it continues to motivate me and fulfill me. Well, it sounds like you kind of found yourself in a way. You know, mm -hmm. People talk about finding themselves, what they're meant to do. And you realize that, yes, I can do this certain thing. And um, that, that brings, I think, let's, let's, let's take a turn now. I know you were very open and honest about some of the difficult times in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned it before about how maybe 9-11 uh, affected you in a way that you had to get out yeah. of New York. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you've been very open about mental health issues, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression. When did that all come about? Were you young when that started? Was that after 9-11? No, no. I had panic attacks um, only when I got to about 30 or so. I, yeah. I was probably powering through everything in my 20s. I was a person, Chris, as, as you probably were just able to deduce from one or two meetings that was trying to squeeze every ounce out of life. And I felt that I had a lot given to me and I felt to, to be loyal to that, I needed to perform 110% above everything. So I wanted to squeeze everything out of life and I wanted to do it in a way where I was demonstrating how blissfully, happily, happy I was, hmm. you know, and, and the, the vision in my head right now is the duck. I was a duck above water. I was looking cool and, and chilling. You see a duck on the pond. Oh, that duck is just chilling out above the water, below the water. What's happening. That duck is paddling like nobody's business, just to chill there. Right. Hmm. And that's how my body was doing it. But I didn't really recognize it at the time. I moved back. I, I made the decision to move away from PTI and continue around the horn in New York for, for life. I wanted to raise my, my family. Sam and I wanted to raise our children in New York. We wanted to be New Yorkers again. And that was important to me. I didn't recognize how much trouble I would have saying goodbye to people I felt indebted to. To Tony, to Mike, to Matt Kelleher, one of my best friends in the world, the producer of Pardon the Interruption, and to Eric Rideholm, uh, you know, one of the most important people in my life professionally. He's the producer of both Around the Horn and, and Pardon the Interruption. I, I was not processing that as well as, as maybe I thought I could just move on and move on to, you know, next stage of my life. And I felt some things when I moved back to New York. And again, I was out in the street. It happened to be September 11th, and it was, and it snuck up on me. And I was out in the street getting a coffee with a newborn. Um, and I saw firefighters out in the street saluting. And it hit me all at once. And I, with a stroller, with a newborn, kind of collapsed into the curb on Church uh, Street here in Lower Manhattan. And I started sweating. And I had a very real panic attack when I processed. And I was transferring so much of that, that, that pain um, and that was one of the things I had to, had to realize that I hadn't come to grips with loss of, of just what 9-11 was. But 
it wasn't just about that. It was about other parts of my life. And as I navigated life, leading a public life, and, and, and this is one of the things I get back to, you know, when you're a performer or when you're, you're a public person, and I was a performer and a pleaser in a lot of ways, you judge yourself how other people see you. Hmm. Grammatically speaking, you make yourself the object of the sentence in your head, not the subject of the sentence in your head. And this is one of the big journeys of my therapy is while being a happy, positive person, you can put yourself first. You should put yourself first. You have to breathe the oxygen mask before you help somebody else. And these were all the lessons I was learning slowly and then gradually and then suddenly, let's say, as I became a father, as I became um, you know, somebody who recognized I was experiencing then on top of that postpartum, you know, anxiety, which is something men experience and I talk about and I, I like to talk about and I could expand and, and direct people. But all these changes happening in your life and feeling responsible for responsible for new lives, they had a very, very um, direct and immediate effect on my person. And, and this manifested itself in, in panic attacks. Yes. Do you think that in a way that has grounded you to the point where you talked about being comfortable with being in the same spot for a, for a lengthy I mean, period of time? I, I know my journey and I know your journey a little bit, Chris. Yeah. And I mean, I have uh, in addition to the postpartum anxiety. There, there's another pointed moment, of course, I'll talk about next where we lost Amadeo in delivery and delivered Enzo, a healthy baby and lost Amadeo. So your wife um, was pregnant with twins and you lost twins. one of the twins. And yeah. we, we, we lost Amadeo suddenly at eight months, right when we were delivered and we're seven and a half and, and grief. And then fear of the future. Both of these things, grief reflects backwards. You're thinking about a past. You're thinking about and and fear of the future things, but you it you lose the now, you lose the moment. How do how do any of us, but but my, specifically myself or yourself, if you're constantly thinking about well, what's next for me, right? And and this is something we you lose that moment. And I needed to learn how to be present. I needed to that that is of course easier said than done. It's a very broad thing, and that doesn't even get to the specifics of it. But just staying in the moment and being present, controlling. Well, you can't control many things, but you can control how you respond to things. And you can control what's in your own head to some, some degree. These, these were the lessons I, I was learning very, very suddenly. Everything that I went through with the postpartum prepared me for that moment where I was holding Amadeo swaddled and feeling his feet to make sure presently in the moment, I knew how real this was, that this was our child in my arms who is not going to be coming home with us. I needed to be present in that moment. Instead of thinking about the double strollers we were about to buy, or every time we see a double stroller for the rest of our lives, hmm. thinking about that or, or thinking about in the past, I had to be in the moment to deal with, with the gravity of that, the duality of that. Enzo, we didn't know it exactly in that second. Healthy. He was in NICU for weeks, but, but healthy. And Amadeo in, in our arms, not going home with us. The duality of that moment was something I needed to be present for. Something I needed to process the moment to move forward. And as I began to do that personally, and what I would say is everyone's journey has to be their own. Sam's 
is quite, my wife, Sam, is quite different than me both in how she processes it uh, publicly and even, even vocally. But when I gave the eulogy at our service for Amadeo, it became ex- exactly what I said on TV when I returned on Father's Day three weeks later. I learned for me, I live a life that is kind of one-to-one between who I am off air and who I am on air. Because that's what I need to do. That's, that's who I need to be. So all these years of, of thinking about how am I going to present myself on TV? Should I wear a suit on TV, which I did for the first 500 episodes? Should I stick to the script that was the Around the Horn Max Kellerman hosted to please the producers because that's the script they wrote? I did that for the first 500,000 episodes. Never felt comfortable in my own head saying these four things I know are true. I know it's a minor thing, but that's a thing that a host says when the show is about them. Here, the panelists on our show are going to try to impress me with their points by, by, but here's how I feel it to be. I couldn't say that in, in, in the way I wanted to host around the horn. I needed to be about the sports writers, even though, sure, I talk about it. Sure, my, my opinion's in my head when I'm hosting the show. These are the types of things that kind of came together and, 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 and fit like a glove as I was going through the moments in my life that have become, you know, the most important moments. And I think sometimes when people think about, you said, taking care of yourself and being comfortable with what you want to do, mm. I think there's, people are always concerned. I don't want to be narcissistic. Right. That's a huge thing for me. That's, a, that's, that's yeah. a real big thing. So Never be do, too full of yourself. Right. Yeah. Like what's the yeah. delineation between, um, you want to break out of anxiety and depression, but you don't want mm. to be narcissistic. This is something I learned in therapy and it applies in other avenues of my life because I have people in my life who struggle with other things. Um, I don't talk about this so much publicly, but we all have people in our lives who have struggled with addiction. You want to feel better about yourself, do stuff for other people. And I have utilized my platform, my position on Around the Horn and I've expanded what I thought the show could be. Again, I was, I was almost stuck for the first couple of years hosting Around the Horn thinking, what makes this show unique? It's a show with a scoring system and a mute button. So lean into that as much as you possibly can. Now I've gone almost 180 the other way. I mean, I score the show. I love it with relish. I love the mute button. I love the band words, which I'll give you a little bit of news, all right? I bet I... I, I Throw a mute button on people when they use cliches that I feel people in the sports writing and sports reporting industry use so much. I like the mystery behind that. But what else can the show bring to the table? We're bringing as as diverse a panel, both in representative of age and region of the country and background and preference for sports and all these things onto a program. I'm going to lean into that, but I'm going to lean into a show that's going to demonstrate to an audience how you can do all that, the fun, the analytical, and do it in a way that is empathetic, in a way that is for others. You want to feel better about yourself, do something for others. Yeah, there's a kindness to your show that I think doesn't exist on some other shows, a compassion rather than just being critical of athletes 
and and things that we do. I think, you know, there's that fine line, you hear it in sports talk about guys want to have fun, but they do it at the expense of other athletes. I appreciate you saying that more than anything, because that's, that's been an evolution for, for, for me personally, you know, I was never the fan. I had some moments growing up where I had my friends call me on the phone and laugh when my team lost and, and pass the phone to their father and laughed at me when their team lost. And that stuck with me. I don't, I don't want to be, I know that can be in a very effective way on TV. I, I don't, let's not laugh at the result. Let's laugh at the fans who lose. I, I don't appreciate that part. If I'm going to be working on a show doing that sort of thing, I recognize the power of that. And I know, I sure as know, we've had drag out, yell them out fights. We were a show that was, um, I would say, kindly tributed, but some people might say made fun of on 30 Rock. You remember 30 <laughs> Rock? Yeah. Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy, um, Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin. And at one moment, Tracy Morgan's character has moved on from comedy and is now a panelist on sports shouting. <laughs> and the show is four heads in boxes and one person in the middle, and they're all screaming at the same time. That's around the horn, right? That's how we were perceived for the first, maybe today, but for the first 10 years of the show, I would resist. And I actively, and and I'm happy to discuss with viewers on Twitter over how they perceive the show and what I perceive the show. And, and we all know as communicators, Chris, we lose control of our message the second it leaves our lips. You lose control of the call. I mean, it, it, we, we try to be intentional with our words, especially with a, a show like Around the Horn where we're talking about just this week, I talked about the tragedy in Virginia. Three Virginia Cavalier football players dead. One still in the hospital, another student in the hospital. Virginia's football season effectively um, canceled now after a mass shooting. And it was important for me to acknowledge. Now, we are a sports debate show. You're not going to debate this. I mean, it's not a debate. Where's the place for this in the show? Well, a show that I'm hosting, I want that story to still have a place. And I feel like this is a topic that, of course, is very political to some people. It becomes about gun control laws almost immediately. And I understand that. But for me, that's too quickly getting past a very important thing. We have to acknowledge our sadness. We have to acknowledge our grief. We have to mourn. So I did take criticism this week for acknowledging that this tragedy is a tragedy in two ways, that it happened and it's a tragedy that we have allowed it to happen again and again in our schools, in our supermarkets, in our churches. And that is a uniquely American tragedy. That is my personal opinion. And I put that out in television from a space of we need to mourn. We need to allow our sadness to have we need to air it. We need to have oxygen. We need to project that out. Because if we're not stopping and living in the moment, the present moment, as I alluded to before, we're not really letting that experience be a full experience. And that's yeah, one to, of the things I've learned. Yeah. You have to own those feelings first. And then, because you can't, you can't start debating issues unless you acknowledge the feeling. The reality and, and the, reality the gravity of, of, of it, it all. Is. 
And you guys are at the forefront of that with your show. You do break off into that. And it, and it leads that whole question of the athlete speaking out. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the shut up and dribble mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I know where you stand on that. Like, you want athletes to express of themselves. Course. They just have yeah. to do it responsibly. Um, I think so. Absolutely. But that's, we forget, you know, again, these are people playing these games and these are young men. And I, and I, you, you brought up, you, you were at the forefront of talking about your mental health issues and anxiety mm-hmm. and depression, things like that, which is important for people to know. But I think also other athletes are going through that now. And I, mm-hmm. and you wonder, you know, you say, well, there's, there's 500 players in the NBA roughly, right? I mean, in the pop general population, if that were the 500 people in general population, there'd have to be a hundred of them that suffer from anxiety and depression. So I'm sure that that sample with athletes is just as high. And that's something that's got to be acknowledged with these guys. It's got to affect them when they hear guys on, you know, Mm -hmm. yelling about them on TV and in social media. Got to hit them. I I mean, we don't even have the numbers and I believe they're underreported anyway. I just did a a seminar with the Jed Foundation on mental athletes, uh, mental health on athletes in the high school and in the college place. Um, When you're going through so much, you still don't even know who you are as a person, but you are getting so much stimuli you're just getting so much thrown at you from things like like social media um i am of the opinion that we are nationally in a mental health crisis but surely our professional athletes who are still navigating the world as young people or navigating the world with high stress job uh the salary doesn't mean anything mental health doesn't discriminate how we talk about mental health does and I wanted Around the Horn to be a place where that, and I, I say that it's okay to not be okay. I say this monthly on a show as we have yet another athlete using their place to say it. The, the, the wonderful words of Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan um, and John Wall uh, this just past year in the NBA. Yeah. I, I don't think we can stress enough what Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles did in the, I mean, again, that was a conversation people went, too quickly too. is this a sign of weakness in their sport? Is there a sign? Soft. All, That's what people always say. You're soft. soft. Yeah. Athletes, you're soft. Athletes need to have strength to compete. Absolutely. A team dynamic needs people to be operating at a certain level of, of cohesion mentally and all these things. Before we even get there, the athlete themselves has to check in with themselves. And the coaches now we're learning need to be more aware, especially with our younger athletes who are, who are struggling. So those uh, Osaka and Biles case, it was the Olympics and it was Wimbledon. We were talking about the, the biggest tournaments and the biggest you know, opportunities for them. They had to say in those moments, Michaela Schifrin, uh, one of the great skiers of all time in the Olympics, had to say in those moments, I'm not there. I'm not all there. Does this mean I'm weak? I, I don't even need to answer that question right now. I need to, at this moment, take time for myself to breathe. And it has become something we have to be aware about as consumers of sport. And we have yeah. to allow for the humanity of athletes uh, before we, uh, <laughs> before and, anything. And really, I, I think it, it starts earlier than the professional level. I think that probably, I mean, I hate to say this, but some, the guys who make it, the women who make it, to the top level are probably ones who are a little more in touch with their mental well-being because it just takes that to get where they've got to go. Where you're seeing a lot of the tragedies from the pressure is mm. high school students, 
high school students and and college students in, in the past yeah. year we've lost a number of college students playing yeah. you know at the highest level and there is no playbook for this we all have to recognize that but we have to impart and again I, I did a seminar on this in the last week where I was just hosting I was listening to to some of the experts in the field and now I pass on some of the things I heard from them but uh impart on to our our coaches and our athletic directors of high school students and of course our parents who who are aware but we have to listen and look for cues because a young person may not and will not often know what they're going through while they're going through it they don't even have you know the the experiences to say okay right now what i'm experiencing is is different athletes are so strong they will power through everything just mentioned some of the greatest in the history of their sports. Michael Phelps, another. It was only after his career was over that he really processed the, the, the problems he was having with depression. And now he's become an advocate too. And so often, we don't even hear the stories of the athletes after they retire. Once, they process, once their career is, is finished, you know, they will recede from, from the headlines. And that's understandable in a lot of ways. We don't even know how many that's touching as well. Well, think but about again, Think the, about the, you. The, the fan will be become more. Uh, we're educating everybody on this, and it becomes another part of your fandom to realize that the humanity of these players. Think about your story. I mean, you talked about mm-hmm. getting to just past thirty, and these things started to hit you. Right. I mean, that's a career for guys. Guys are, you know, mm-hmm. men and women athletes are usually are usually done a lot of times by thirty, especially talking about these Olympic athletes. I mean, and then right. so all that again, the duck paddling under the water. It all catches up with you and it manifests its way in sometimes dangerous ways. Did you see, I, I, know, I know you're a movie guy like I am and you're a music guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw this movie recently and I mentioned in the last podcast, The Sound of Metal. Oh, I, I know of this movie and I, I am a drummer in a different life yeah. and I haven't seen it yet, but this is Riz Ahmed's movie. Yes. Yes. I have, Riz Ahmed was mm-hmm. nominated for an Academy Award. It won for, for sound and editing and it's just an amazing story, but- Again, it's somebody, it's a, a drummer, he's going deaf, and then how that changes his life. But there's a part of it where it talks about finding stillness. And that really, I think, in the end, is what the movie is about. And I would recommend that you see it um, immediately. Uh, <laughs> <when the> next, <laughs> time, next movie night, uh, I know yeah, you've got little I, children around, one so it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, no, it's about that. Where you where you realize that you you have a picture of your life the way you want it to be, and you're always moving toward that. And there's so many things moving around, and then it just busts, and you have to now envision life differently. And you need to then find that stillness in the present moment. And it's and and it, and it, I thought that movie mm-hmm. uh, really showed it in a way that that brought it yeah. to you in a cinematic way and i i love it i can't i, I recommend and that can it highly. resonate with everybody but but let me ask the personal question Kristen. how how yeah. how do you get into that stillness and how do you how do you manage to to be present when everything in the future is as big a question mark for you as it is for everybody but it's there yeah i think that you know i, I have the case where i'm living with a progressive disease and sometimes you, there's a fine line between sort of denying where it's going and putting it out because you want to be present. You know, I, I used to say, I, I did this piece with, uh, with Woj and, um, where they did this little mini documentary thing. And, and I talked about 
well, I don't know how I'm going to get up the steps to that airplane in 10 years. And I go, well, I don't have to, I don't worry about that now. I worry about today, getting up the staircase that's in front of me today. Well, I've gotten to today where I, now I can't get up that staircase. And you worry about how's that going to affect you? But there's a little hiccup where I've had to not be on the plane for a while, but now they're working on something to get me up onto the plane. So, all right, here's something I worried about. But now when I've gotten to what I was worried about, we found out a way to figure it out. We found out a way to fix it. And I think you have to, whenever I've gone through some tough times in my life, I've had friends who said to me, well, you know what? You're going to be okay. And I think if you have this sense of, I have friends in my life, I have people who are going to look out for me. Um, I, 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 w- w- living with a progressive disease teaches you is to make sure, number one, you, you cultivate those friendships. You be a friend to people. You treat people the way you would want to be treated so that when you do need help, there's people that are there for you. And I think if you have that confidence that you've developed those relationships, that people are going to look out for you, then there's less to fear going forward. And I think that by also going through it, you realize what's important. You know, you realize, yeah, don't take it all so seriously. Am I going to, me and my wife going to bicker about silly things that nobody's going to care about in another three months? Or am I going to look at this woman and say, you know how much she does for me and how much I rely on her and how much her love means to me and gets me through what I have to go through? I'm not going to take it all so serious. And I'm going to, we'll, we'll just, we'll figure it out and move on. Like it just, you know, you just figure out what's important and yeah, learn to be in the moment. I think I've always been a very, um, I think I've always been very still and mentally focused and Zen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helped me in a way get through these things over the years. So I, I don't know, it's hard for me to relate to people who, who have anxiety or depression, things like that, because it's just never, it's just not the way I'm wired. So it's hard mm-hmm. for me. I think the other thing you learn as you get older, I don't, there's no absolutes. I don't know everything. Yeah. yeah. And I can't yeah. relate what you're going through. I can't relate to that. And you can't relate to what I'm going through. We're all going through our struggles and we just have to find a way to get through them. And I think you do that mm-hmm. with being a good person and helping other people. Right. Right. But uh, yeah, hey, everyone I, will be going through their different ways. But I, I do yeah. think there's value. We, we, there's the expression, you know, that you never know until you walk a mile in a person's shoes, right? And that's that starts to define empathy. But it doesn't, for me, actually totally get there because I don't need to be in your shoes to help you or be there for you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just at, oh, okay, okay. How are your shoes <laughs> to, to keep that expression going? Or do you need a foot massage? All these things yeah. that, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's that, you know, to have people in your life and to be that person for other people. That's when we talk about, you know, how do you make yourself feel better? Do something for somebody else. It's, it's still in that space. I, I started a foundation uh, as a midlife crisis. You know, I kind of went, my wife was like, you can't keep this to yourself. That was my thing. I could never ask for help. I could never talk about it. I had this image of myself and I didn't want to be looked at as somebody that was different or whatever, but that's not the way to go through it. And the people in your life need to know that they're not alone either. 
So I started a foundation and we've raised, you know, a couple million dollars and we've, we've, we've funded all this research. I always joke that it's the most selfish thing I ever did, you know, because I'm trying to find a cure for my disease. But, you know, but then when I talked to all these, you know, the, as soon as we started, I, I'm on the phone with some teenager in Alabama. Mm-hmm. He's telling me about going through the same things I was going through. And you're like, wow, this is going to have an impact on a lot of people. Um, so, yeah. So in a way, it is selfish, but it's not. It's, it's doing something for others. And that has that's been a huge thing for me. You know, it's just it's this weight off your shoulders. What you're saying, you know, being open about what, you're, what you've gone through, it's helping you. You're feeling better because now you're not hiding something. I always tell people, right. when you have this, any kind of uh, burden physically, mentally, you, 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 you have the burden of dealing with it, and then you have the burden of hiding it. If hiding you get it. rid of the mm-hmm. burden of hiding it, mm-hmm. now you don't have mm-hmm. to worry about that anymore. It relieves your burden. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that was it. But um, I'll tell you another thing that always used to get me through it. And remember the great uh, Jim Balbano ESPN SB speech? right? Never give up. One of the greatest of all time. So I always like to end these things. And I know I've had you on for a while and I'm sure maybe we'll do this again because we have a number of things we haven't touched on. But Mm -hmm. um, I always, Jim Valbano, in that speech, he said, to live a full life, you should do three things every day, Mm -hmm. right? You should laugh, cry, think, right? So I asked my subjects here on the Voice of the Nets podcast, and you are the subject here today, Tony Rialli. what or who, something maybe recently, that makes you laugh? <laughs> oh, I laugh all day. Um, I mean, so there's a baby, you know, uh, did a Staten Island dump, which is what we call it, when you're in a bathtub and, and um, you, know, you poop the bathtub. That makes me laugh. You know, I, I, I mean, it makes me laugh. It's it's. That's I so never that was heard one. that expression before. I, well, I, actually... I think we coined it in our family. All right. <laughs> I think we coined it in our family. So that's so that was one thing, of course, today. I, I laugh all all day at work. We yeah. uh, you know, we have I a very relaxed work setting. But uh, I'll give that. I'll give Antonella the Staten Island dump was my laugh of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also good to laugh at work. If you can't laugh at work, you gotta start thinking about another another job. <laughs> um yeah. all right. I, I know that you're like me probably get very emotional at times. And you've talked about some mm-hmm. dark times in your life. And obviously that's mm-hmm. something I get emotional, mm-hmm. but like Jimmy V said, you know, something that moves you to tears, it could be in a good yeah. way. So yeah, what's yeah. something recently that maybe uh, a commercial, a song, a movie, yeah, whatever, I love, that, we that love when it's the commercials. Those, those get you out of anywhere. Um, hasn't happened today. I haven't cried today. And I think I'm, I'm pretty close to Volvano, but, but not today. Um, hmm. I was, I, I go back and I watch videos of sporting events from time to time just to get myself, you know, excited for, for things. And uh, I was recently watching um, the Olympic swim that was a relay. And it's Jason Lezak is the name of the swimmer who ran the anchor in a, it was a Michael Phelps gold medal that he needed to get the record uh, along the way. So Lezak has the greatest swim of all time to beat a Frenchman and at the touch. And that makes me cry. So mm. I did that two days ago. Uh, I, I saw Lezak swim. See, that's where you know you're in the right business, Tony, that, that, <laughs> that a sporting have, event. You know what, for me also, you. an interesting thing about it, it's, it's the sports I didn't grow up doing and the sports I don't love a man swimming. Um, secretariat running makes me cry. Mm. I see my children 
their faces when they're running. When I watch Secretariat run, moving like an incredible machine. That call brings me brings me to tears. Um, Rapino mm. to Wombach's head in the World Cup. I thought it was one of the greatest crosses. I am a soccer fan. That stuff gets me emotional. Uh, uh, the the famous uh, runner whose father comes out and helps him with his hamstring yeah. is is torn in the Olympics. That stuff will make yeah. me cry. I I seek those videos, and I often get it from sports, and that's why, of course. I'm still doing my show 20 years later. Too. No, I, I talked to Nat Butler, who's a famed NBA photographer recently, and, and, and asked him these same questions. And he said, similar to you, about just seeing these athletes uh, achieve something. When I, you're around it like we are our whole lives, you know the sacrifice. You know what it means to them. And to be able yeah. to see that moment play out in, in front of the world and know how that is. I mean, yeah, but that's, and I think that's what Jimmy V was talking about, right? It's not like, mm -hmm. well, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to see something sad and cry. No, it's just no. have something in your life that's going to stir your emotions to a point where you get emotional. Yeah. Being enthusiastic and emotional, it's what it is. Laughs and cries. It's, a, it's, it's, they're very much similar. Um, when you walk into Barclays Center, there's this Oculus, this uh, digital circular board. And everyone getting out of the subway over there or coming into the arena, they get a chance. They'll see this. They'll notice if you had a chance to put something up there. This is the think part. Put something up there for, for a message for everyone to see as they go in. Um, what do you think? An image or a statement or something that you would put up there to, uh, to get to the masses? This one's easy for me. And um, I, I host people on sets that have no interest in sports, you know, just, or TV, you know, they're just going through a tour with, and I still impart, especially to young people. And it, now we're, now we're just quoting our favorite people, I guess, because this is not my quote. And I will immediately demonstrate why the quote is incorrect by remembering it. Right. So it's the famous quote. People may forget what you say. People may forget what you do but they will not forget how you make them feel. Yeah. Maya Angelou, the great Maya Angelou said that. So I immediately remember, I remember what she said because she was the one who said it. <laughs> but you but, don't remember the exact quote because that was her point. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it's, it's how you feel. So, I mean, for me, it's feel, 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 but um, I'm trying every day on around the horn, the show with the game, the game show with the mute button, uh, to make people feel. I'm trying every day in my life to make people feel. People in my life make me feel every day. So once through all life's ups and downs, I, I really drilled down on who I was as a person. It was a feeler. It was a person who feels. And I try to impart onto everybody that could be your superpower. That is your superpower. The ability to feel can get you through everything. And how you make other people feel can get them through everything and get you through everything. So utilize your feelings as a superpower. There's a Pearl Jam song. And if you see <laughs> me, I have Pearl Jam photos behind me and I re mm. relate everything to Pearl Jam is, uh, yeah. I don't want to think, I want to feel. How do I feel? That's the quote that we'll end on here today. Tony Reale. I hope you, uh, were you scoring? 
uh, at home during this? <laughs> I hope you were muting, Chris, no. because, I mean, I did talk far more than I, I should have. I, the only thing I muted a couple of times was myself because uh, yeah. I had I had I'm leaf blowers going behind me yeah. for a second. So I muted oh, myself is that right? yeah, yeah, while yeah, you were yeah. speaking. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm using the mute button with Tony Reale. The guy who has the mute button needs it used on him. And the only mute button in the Reale family was Mama's Big CD. That was, you know, that was the only thing that shut us all up at once, eating the big scene. Tony, thanks, buddy. Happy holidays to you. Right back at you, Chris. Best to you and the family. That song by Pearl Jam, by the way, is called Hell Hell. One of my favorites. I don't want to think. I want to feel. How do I feel? Thanks to... Producer Tom Dow, thanks to engineer Isaac Lee. Hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. I'm Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets. Thank you so much for listening. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.